Hey everybody, this is Hafsa, and you are listening to Decrypted, your weekly podcast that delves into politics and history to decrypt complex topics. It doesn't matter what your background is, get yourself a cup of coffee or tea if you're a tea person, because in today's episode, we're talking about a topic that is political, economic, social, and most importantly, human. We're talking about the situation of migrants in Tunisia. It all started with a group of Tunisian men and women who raised banners complaining about the presence of migrants, or fellow Africans, in Tunisia and asking their government to take action. Then, it escalated with Qais Saeed, the president, who made a controversial speech in February of this year and said that migrants are a source of insecurity for Tunisia and that their presence will change the country's demographic composition. And audiences, including myself, we were caught off guard because top officials and presidents especially, they're supposed to be nuanced and they're not supposed to adopt simplistic narratives, let alone a narrative coded in xenophobia. So, long story short, the behavior of Tunisian authorities towards migrants, or Africans as some say as if Tunisia were part of Asia or America, um, it caused global indignation. But what is exactly happening? What explains the government's attitude? And what does the European Union have to do with this? And who's right and who's wrong? And is it even right to ask this question? In this episode, we'll dig into Tunisian politics to decrypt what is happening to migrants. Let's dive in. First things first, you should know that there are many migration routes in the Mediterranean. Um, some migrants, they depart from the shores of West Africa to reach the Spanish Canary Islands. So, um, for example, from Morocco, Mauritania or Senegal. And others attempt to reach Europe from Turkey. And so they would cross to Greece or Bulgaria or Cyprus. And then the third migration route consists of crossing from Libya or Tunisia to Italian waters. But over the past years, many migrants have avoided Libya because um, the country is unstable and the risk of exposure to human rights violations is very high. So if you're a migrant and the Libyan authorities intercept you, the chances are that you would be sent to one of the notorious detention centers. And the international organizations like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, they have documented the human rights abuses committed at detention centers. But um, the situation has not changed, unfortunately. And uh, here, um, I'd like to recommend a great book by the brilliant journalist Sally Hayden, and it's called My Fourth Time We Drowned. And, um, of course, I, I won't spoil what the book is about, but uh, Sally documents what it's like to attempt to cross the Mediterranean while um, shedding light on the wide range of human rights violations that migrants are exposed to. 
So if that seems like something you want to know more about, please check Sally's book. But wait, you may ask, but Hafsa, why would someone take this uncertain journey which can end in the most tragic ways possible? Because you may end up at a detention center and your family will not get news about you unless you manage to pay ransom or escape miraculously. And if you decide to escape, the chances are that you will fall in the hand of militias or smugglers who will either kill you in cold blood, torture you, or ask for money, large amounts of money. So you may wonder, but is it even sane to take that risk? And this is an important question, especially amid the rise of the far right in Europe and the news of politicians signing migration deals to curb irregular migration. And uh, um, it feels like those politicians, they think that someone wakes up one day and is like, huh, the weather is lovely. I'll take my family, including my eight-month-old child on a safari trip, and we'll spend a couple of days, or weeks, maybe, in the desert, and then we'll conclude the trip with a swim. Let me tell you, no sane person does that. People take risks that you or I would not because they're left with no choice. If they're not fleeing poverty, they're fleeing persecution due to their identity or opinion. And if they're not fleeing persecution and instability, then they're fleeing the lack of opportunities. And if not, they're fleeing drought and hunger. And usually it's many interlinked factors that push one person to flee their home in order to build a better life elsewhere. So in Tunisia, some state sources claim that there are at least one million migrants when... In reality, the number varies between 20,000 and 50,000. And here over 9,000 are registered asylum seekers and refugees. And many are students pursuing their education at Tunisian uh, universities. And um, uh, the other day I was listening to a migration expert discussing Tunisia's migration policy and um, she raised an interesting point that some of us tend to forget. Uh, basically, she explained that many migrants arrive legally to Tunisian territory because there is no visa requirement. So when we talk about migrants from Ivory Coast, Mali or Guinea, their entry was nothing but legal. So... What does that have to do with the anti-migrant narrative that has been dominating the headlines? Well, to understand, it's important to uh, have a look at the current state of Tunisian politics. And here, uh, I'll go back to uh, 2021. In that year, Kais Saeed dissolved the government. He froze the parliament and later suspended it. And he claimed the power normally fallen under the parliament's authority. So basically, he summoned ministers, replaced them with those uh, who would support him no matter what. And a bit later, in 2022, he dissolved the council that upheld judicial independence since 2016, and as you might have guessed, the president now possesses unchecked power over the judiciary branch. And a side note here is that in any country 
once the judiciary loses its independence, everything falls apart because politicians and ordinary citizens know that they are the mercy of somebody else and that laws no longer have any weight or relevance. So in Tunisia, the changes affected nearly all institutions. And to keep things simple, the president granted himself carte blanche to do anything he wanted. So Tunisia shifted from a country where institutions govern to a one-man country. But isn't that confusing? Um, Tunisia is the birthplace of the Arab uprisings in 2011. And you may remember how Tunisians led by example and gave neighboring countries a lesson in democracy, in human rights and in dignity. And um, I remember watching the news about the developments that followed the tragic death of Bouazizi. And I hope that the anger that the Tunisians felt would spread to other countries and be strong enough to drive change. So Tunisia was an exception and respected scholars of Fouad Masri, he even wrote a book titled Tunisia, an Arab Anomaly, uh, to highlight the culture of reform that is rooted in Tunisia and which essentially drove achievements in education, civil rights, religion, and it paved the road for a strong civil society. So what we're seeing today is a democratic backsliding and a return to point zero. What we're seeing is a return to the pre-2011 era whose signature was crackdown on freedom of expression, arrests, economic crisis, political crisis definitely, and most importantly, an unchecked president that has a grip over the country's future. And another thing here is that Qais Saeed uh, is using the migration card to put pressure on the EU uh, to get financial assistance. Because, um, as you may know, many arrivals to Tunisia means many to Europe. And for many reasons that you may or may not agree with, uh, the Europe considers migrants to be a burden. For example, um, more than 24,000 migrants crossed from Tunisia to Italy between January and April of this year. That, that's a large number, right? So the Tunisian president perfectly understands that European countries want their southern neighbor to implement better border management measures to deter migrants from reaching European shores. And uh, you might have seen on the news that several EU officials uh, in uh, Italy, for example, the Netherlands, the president of the EU Commission as well, they met with their um, Tunisian counterparts and they signed a migration deal in exchange for financial assistance. And can you believe that Italy even supported Tunisia's IMF loan by suggesting that it would be a major catalyst for economic recovery? And for a bit of context here, the um, Tunisian government is in dire need of external assistance to save its economic indicators. So uh, it has been trying to reach an agreement with the IMF to get a loan, of course. But the chances that the government would succeed are currently low because um, many sources uh, say that there is a disagreement over the measures imposed by the IMF on the Tunisian government because 
of course, you don't get a loan uh, for free. You get a loan from the IMF and in exchange, the IMF tells you to implement a, you know, a number of, uh, of policies. So you may say, but why would someone complain? There's nothing wrong with this. And uh, here, allow me to tell you that the political climate in Tunisia alters the whole equation. Some people believe that Europe is claiming to support democracy while supporting a president and a government that are making life hard for many Tunisians. And others believe the financial package would be a great opportunity to get the country out of the crisis. And um, whether you belong to the first or the second camp, it's important to ask two questions. First, will the money indeed go to lift the economy up? And will it have a direct impact on average Tunisian citizens who are no longer able to make ends meet? And second, will the government adopt high standards of human rights towards migrants? And um, I'll be direct here and say that it's very hard to tell whether or not the financial package will benefit Tunisian citizens. And for the second question, we clearly see an obvious and significant asymmetry in European and Tunisian relations. And here, the Tunisian government is in a weak position. It needs money. Plus, it does not have a solid domestic legal framework on refugees and asylum seekers. And that results in many shortcomings and failures, especially when it comes to meeting the basic needs of migrants. And in this context, we can say that the um, EU has more leverage to impose its own terms and eventually it has the money that the Tunisian government wants. So, EU officials are in a position to say you will do X and Y and Z and in exchange you'll get millions of dollars to heal your economy. And before we forget, that can involve taking actions that go against morality and ethics. And for that part, we'll turn a blind eye because it's inside your territory. And yes, money in exchange for border control has come at a great cost. Not for the Tunisian government, of course, but for migrants. And here there are many um, reports and testimonies that you can access online that show that the Tunisian authorities are deporting migrants to what is called no man's land near Libya and leaving them with no food and shelter or even water. And in that place, we're talking about a desert where the temperature can easily go beyond 50 degrees. And thankfully, NGOs like Alarm Phone are documenting the human rights violations that migrants are subject to. And this is of paramount importance because they, they are the only voice of migrants. And now before we conclude this episode, let's reflect on the concept of irregular migration. Um, today, the sad truth is that many countries are deploying massive funds to curb irregular migration, and they claim that regular migrants are welcome. And at the same time, they're tightening the legal routes for one to arrive legally. So um, let's suppose someone lives in country X and a conflict uh, broke out, so they start looking for a way to reach country Y that happens to be safe. 
But then they realize that legal migration channels are closed. Embassies are closed and of course they can't apply for a visa. So what they're left with is crossing countries to make it to that safe destination. So how is that person supposed to seek asylum if they don't follow an illegal migration route? And let's not forget that it takes a lot of guts to even reach the North African shores. If that person is, for example, from Eritrea, Sudan or Niger, by the time they reach the coast of Morocco or Libya, Tunisia, you name it, the chances are that they have seen it all. And um, I also have a second question for you. Uh, do you think the massive migration flows to Europe have a link with Europe's colonial experience in Africa? Um, in other words, is irregular migration a consequence of colonialism and imperialism? And uh, if you ask me to give my perspective, I would say yes, but yes, because Europe's legacy in Africa uh, includes maintaining weak states that can't afford basic social services to citizens. And oftentimes those states are prone to internal conflict. Plus, uh, when the colonial powers left, many left behind regimes that would safeguard their interests even if that comes at a cost of the local population. So if the ruling elite in country X decides it wants to stop the relation of patron puppet with country Y, then the ruling elite in Y strives to restore the status quo. And who knows, even if that takes military intervention, that doesn't really matter. So long story short, irregular migration is an indirect consequence of colonialism in Africa, yes, but we should all take this statement with a pinch of salt because blaming Europe for everything is just naive and simplistic, and um, um, this victim mindset won't lead you anywhere, and it won't drive change, and it will only trap you in a vicious circle. So, between money in exchange for border control, a domestic political crisis, and human rights violations towards migrants from fellow African countries, the recent developments in Tunisia contradict the spirit of the African Union, defined by cooperation, solidarity, and unity. Tunisia should strive to recover the image of the exceptional country whose citizens unleashed the Arab uprisings in 2011 to obtain the freedom and dignity they are born with. And to achieve that, the Tunisian government should adhere to the social contract and listen to the demands of the people. This is the only way for the country to grow strong and immune to the rules of other countries, especially when those rules involve trade in money for human rights, ethics and morality. Thank you very much for listening to this episode from start to finish. If you enjoyed it, please share it with your friends, colleagues and family. If you have any questions, comments or remarks, please find me on Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter. I would also be happy if you suggest topics that you want me to decrypt for you. And in the meantime, take care, stay safe, 
and stay tuned for the next episode which will be about the animosity between Morocco and Algeria.